Hi everybody, it's very shortly before worship on the first Sunday of Advent here at St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Skokie, Illinois. I'm the redheaded preacher. My name is Richard Lanford. I thank you for tuning in. And because it's running, I'm running late and I still have to robe up, I'm just going to uh, not give a full introduction, but I am going to lead us in a, a moment of prayer. And then the next words you'll hear will be those of our lector, Mr. David Iannotti, who used to be in my Sunday school here. Now he's a father of two. Please join me in the spirit of prayer. Gracious and mysterious God, we come before you and ask for your spirit to help us listen, to find what you want us to hear, and to apply it to our understanding of your word. And that in turn shapes our approach towards life and how we treat one another. This blessing we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, amen. With the holiday season starting, you and I are going to be bombarded by words. Words set to music, playing endlessly over TV or radio ads. Words without music in commercials trying to sell us their products. Words in podcasts, cards, gatherings, and yes, Advent sermons. It's easy to not even hear them anymore. But as we come to these words from Scripture, let us ask God's Spirit to help us patiently listen, learn more about Advent, and more about God. Let us pray. Great God, grant us a quiet center now so we can focus on what your word says to us this morning. May we wake up to what you want us to learn, and may we be encouraged to draw closer to you in this holy season. In your name we pray, amen. Our first reading for the first Sunday of Advent is Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 9. It begins as a prayer that God reveal himself in power as in days of old, moves to a prayer of confession, and then pleads that the Lord turn away from anger and have compassion again on his people. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence as we fire kindles, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you are angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls your, on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, 
you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. This ends the reading from Isaiah. Our next reading is also our gospel lesson. It is from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 13, verses 24 through 37. The start of Advent means the start of a new lectionary cycle of readings. Each one of the three cycles features one of the Gospels, with John always sprinkled throughout the three years. We just finished year A with Matthew being the primary Gospel. Now, in year B, we will spend a lot of time with Mark. In this lesson, Jesus has been talking to the disciples about signs of the end of the age and the return of the Son of Man. Jesus said, But in those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. <coughs> Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. Here ends the reading from Mark and the scriptures for this morning service. May God give us a wise and hopeful understanding of this, God's holy word. A friend of mine once admitted that she did not know really what was meant by the word eschatology. I thought if she was not sure, maybe others really aren't as well. I decided to make this homily a teaching one about the eschaton, eschatology, and what it means in short, the end of the age. First, a little Greek work. The word eschaton is from the Greek word for last eschatos. Eschatology, then, is fundamentally a philosophy or theology of the last things. Traditionally, it has encompassed such matters as the second coming of Christ, of which we hear in Mark 13, and is always featured on the first Sunday of Advent, whether it's from Mark, Matthew, or Luke. 
It also often includes resurrection of the dead, the immortality of the soul, final judgment, heaven and hell. The eschatology, or the theology of the end and last things, the eschatology of the New Testament, which is woven into many passages in the New Testament, is intelligible only against the background of Old Testament and late Jewish apocalyptic writings. Oh, there's another word. Apocalyptic. Apocalypse also comes from the Greek apocalypsis, which means the revealing or unveiling, as in the revealing of special knowledge and in revealing or unveiling what is to come. The revelation of John in Greek is the apocalypsis of John. In general, the Old Testament hope is centered around the restoration of the covenant of Israel through which it is believed God will restore God's reign over the entire world, lifting up to prominence the people of Israel. For the most part, the Old Testament writings about the day of Yahweh slash day of the Lord are marked by restraint, for the most part. So far as depictions of time and details are concerned, the emphasis falls on God's judgment of Israel and hope for renewal. We find these passages mostly in the prophets. And toward the end of the Old Testament period, however, the hopes of Israel came more and more to be expressed in the fantastic imagery of apocalypticism, the terrors and woes preceding the coming of Messiah, the convulsions of nature, the frightful battle between angelic hosts and the legions of Satan, the establishment of a temporary reign of the righteous, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, the punishment of the wicked, and the creation of a new heaven and earth. So that's a transition time, in a way, from some of what we read in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is, by its very name, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic itself, about unveiling or revealing, is a literary genre with its own rules, simply like the numbers are symbolic, and parts of the story can repeat themselves in some kind of cycle. You think you've reached the end, and no, it, it starts again. And if you're trying to be chronological in interpretation, you can get messed up, because it's not meant to be. It's meant to be a, a cyclic repetition of the story, but in different ways. Well, that's part of the genre of the literature back then. Overall, we can see that some of our eschatology came from late Jewish beliefs and writings about the end times as well as the prophets. So let's move on to the New Testament. Now, the preaching of Jesus presupposes these widespread popular beliefs. And it has definitely shaped some of the framework of his and John the Baptist's messages. For example, we heard Jesus say in Mark, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is drawing near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. So we hear John the Baptist and Jesus emphasize Jesus, especially at his outset of preaching, 
repentance, the nearness of the kingdom, and being ready for Messiah when Messiah comes. Read the signs. But overall, Jesus rejected any detailed speculation concerning the last days, and we heard it, heard David read about that. Nobody knows the day or the hour. So the earliest Christian community saw in Jesus' death and resurrection the beginning of the end of the age. And they gathered together expectantly in the hope of the second coming and this general resurrection. Jesus himself said he would be coming soon. They took that chronologically. They took it literally. And his delay then caused a crisis in the early church. And it was resolved only by the creative insights of the Apostle Paul and the Gospel of John, with a little help from 2 Peter, that passage we'll actually hear next Sunday. Now, with differing emphases, Paul and John shifted the focus away from a future hope, not to deny it, but to shift the focus away from it, from the future hope, when's it coming, to present communion with the Holy Spirit in life in the body of Christ until he does indeed come. We live now as those who have ascended in a way. We live in love and communion, and so we are in what is called realized eschatology. Ephesians 2.6 even tells of believers already being in a state of being raised up with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places. Paul wasn't talking about this as a future thing. He's saying you're already there. That's realized eschatology. We live in confidence that it's going to happen. It is in us as Christ is. So let's go back to some of our passages. This stuff was presupposed in behind Jesus' teaching. And then we've got John and Paul's take. Let's return. Now, in what we heard David read, our first one, the first part of what he read uh, from, from Mark, it's definitely cosmic. It points to a great change that's being born. Jesus said, but in those days after that suffering, he had been talking about persecution. In those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. That is some fantastic imagery, all right. It's apocalyptic. It seems to foretell the end of the current heaven and earth, creating the need for and the way for the new heaven and earth, which Revelation talks about. Commentator Ronald Kernigan, however, suggests Uh, Maybe not, and goes deeper and I think better when he wrote, he did some digging in Old Testament prophecy, and he wrote that the stars falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens being shaken mean the complete realignment of the power structure of that era suitable for a new king and realm. For instance, remembering this is old imagery, he said, Kernigan wrote, The image of the stars falling from the sky is part of a prophecy of judgment against the nations in Isaiah 34, which he then quotes, 
and says this is not a prediction of the end of the world in Isaiah 34. It is a prophecy of the homes in Israel's of the homes of Israel's enemy. Similarly, he wrote, the specter of the sun and moon being darkened. That appears in Isaiah 13, verse 10, in the judgment against Babylon. And it appears again in Ezekiel 32, in the prophecy against Pharaoh. Once again, he says, rather than signal the end of the world, these images describe a major disruption in the world's political structures that was about to occur within the framework of history. There is good reason, then, he continued, to think that Mark 13, these couple of verses, 24 and 25, does not describe the end of history, but a change in the powers in this world. And Jesus, as Lord, changed things for us. Here's another passage that might raise some questions for us. It's the very next set of verses. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds, with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now this passage also has some history. This passage refers to a section from the book of Daniel, itself a pretty apocalyptic book in the second half. Chapter 7, verse 13 says, As I watched in the night vision." I saw one like a human being, Aramaic, one like a son of man. I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. This being was presented to the ancient of days and was given kingship that all nations should serve him in everlasting dominion. And my study Bible says that this one was traditionally identified as the Messiah. But What does it mean to be coming with the clouds of heaven? First, it means coming with the presence of God almost like being God. And if your Christology is high enough, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, that makes that there's not a problem with that. Remember during the Exodus, how the Lord revealed God's glory and presence to the fleeing Hebrews by appearing during the day as a pillar of cloud. This coming, I suggest, is not with literal clouds because we've been given its symbolism for it in the Old Testament, but the coming is with what and whom they represent, the glory and the presence of God. This phrase and imagery in Mark are inspired by Daniel 7, but there the visions part company. They go different places. The believers, the elect, are gathered Eschaton achieved. But although the gathered sound like they are headed into heaven, Jesus, in the rest of our passage this morning, goes back to how followers of Jesus are to keep living on earth by being alert, keeping watch, for we do not know when the time will be. Thus the parable of the steward who keeps things going in order while faithfully awaiting the master's return. But at some point, Jesus says something we probably have all wondered. What's he talking about? What does this mean? So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away 
until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What things is he talking about? The assembly of the faithful, the change in world power structures which the falling stars represented? Yes and no. What things, these things, are first found in the, they're, they're found first in the part of the chapter which David did not read today. It wasn't part of the verses that were suggested. Very early in Mark 13. <clears throat> and what the, uh, excuse me, what the things he's talking about is the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. When these things have taken place, Earlier in the chapter, it goes back, but you don't forget the context. Let's remember that in that era when Jewish folks, they set their hope on a blessed end. It had to do with the restoration of the temple no longer being under Roman oppression and Jerusalem as the glorious city of God. And here, Jesus is talking to the disciples of the temple's eventual destruction. Stone will not be left upon stone, he said to the disciples. And there's a theology for that which time does not allow me to explain. But it's because Jesus is going to be the new temple where there's intermediary between God and us. It's possible, though, going back to the words itself that Jesus said about this generation will not pass away until all these things, it's possible that instead of the word he is drawing near, it could be rendered as it, per the New International Version, and Dr. Kernigan supporting that. The it, that is, it is near at the very gates, would be the destruction of the temple, not the return of Christ. In the Greek, neither he nor it appear, making it a tough translation, which has been delved into, but not by me. My Greek is not good enough. If Jesus meant to say, so also, when you see these things taking place, you know that it is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you. So we're thinking, okay, he's talking about perhaps the destruction of the temple and the, taking, and the sacking of Jerusalem. And he, then he says, truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, if we look at it that way, that these things, he's referring back to when he talked about the temple being destroyed, and you know that it is near, meaning this destruction, before it happens, because there are decades before it happened. That makes the answer to that question easier. What's he talking about? The it is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which hasn't happened when Jesus was speaking. Rome destroyed the temple in 70 A.D., after which time Mark was written, probably close to around that time. Surely many of those who heard Jesus preach in the early 30s were still around when the temple fell, so this generation who heard him had not passed away when the temple was destroyed. And we're talking about his words still today, right? So they definitely have not passed away. His words have not passed away. I need to come to a close. And I apologize for the abruptness of that. But to try to summarize a little bit, in closing one way, in one way to read Mark 13, it seems like Jesus, for the most part, is almost like John and Paul, 
trying to get the disciples' focus a little bit away from the old apocalyptic glory. Don't focus on that as much as the call to follow Jesus in this life, alertly, even as he will clash with the power structures of his time before they're restructured, and so will we at times with ours. I hope you've gained at least some understanding of the often confusing eschatology that we find in the scriptures as you and I remain in the end of the age still yet. And I always say when people ask me, is is it coming soon? Is Christ coming back soon? I say, I don't know about when. My job is just to be ready. And maybe that's part of that focus change trying to figure out when or what it's going to be like uh, at the end. But, okay, what are the signs? And my job is to be faithful and ready, as is the church's. And that's good news. Amen. You know, one of the reasons I chose to preach on this is because when I was growing up, um, I I never heard a sermon on heaven or hell, the afterlife, or eschatology. I understood it a little from reading the Bible myself. I knew there were these, you know, predictions of Christ coming back at the end of time, and and uh, it was pretty fantastic. Some of the stuff that we heard today and that we find in other parts of the New Testament, um, not just the Book of Revelation. As I said, it's woven through the New Testament. Um, and I decided that it was time to, ad- to at least give an introductory, as I called it, a teaching sermon on the subject, because it might be the only time people really get a chance to listen to something that takes it head on. And it's, it, you know, it's not a, an exhaustive message. It can't be. And eschatology has got, goes in a lot of different directions. It is, a, it is a confusing part of Christian theology because there are so many different ways to interpret, um, or at least we're all trying to find the right way to interpret, the passages. And the passages, it's not like a nice, clean, systematic system because I think the scriptures don't lend themselves to that when it comes to eschatology. Even the, the, the apocalyptic literature that I mentioned, one of the characteristics of of the genre is and the book of revelation is an example of this that um the larger story has smaller stories within it that have a theme and it kind of repeats and but it doesn't tell you it's repeating and so if you try to impose a chronology on that not understanding that well this is the same story told in a different way then you're going to mess people up by teaching that there's a linear chronology in something like the book of Revelation. And I was taught that there isn't. Um, so I I didn't mean to make this uh, outro a, a second sermon, but just a little bit about why I chose to preach on this. Isaiah 64, I had three different messages I could have gone with, or one with three points. And um, that would have been a more pastoral message. But like I said, it was time to... To, to preach on something I don't know that I've really ever preached head-on about before. So I hope that you found it refreshing, if not also um, 
educational, and even maybe a little bit uplifting. We try to do that here at St. Peter's. Next Sunday will be the second Sunday of Advent. Um, it will be the candle of peace that will be lit. And the scriptures will be coming also from Isaiah, but also from Second Peter, and again from the Gospel according to Mark. So thank you for tuning in. We always appreciate it. And I know that a lot of different places from different countries around the globe tune in. And that's cool. And that's appreciated also. All glory to God, right? The glory belongs to God. And let me close with my usual benediction. May God bless you. And may God bless your week. Amen. Like what you've heard? Hit subscribe to follow and get updates on our newest additions to The Red-Headed Preacher. We'd love it if you'd give us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us online under most social media platforms by typing St. Peter UCC Skokie in your browser. Donations are much needed and very welcomed. You can donate to us by going to paypal.me backslash St. Peter UCC Skokie. This information and more can also be found in the show notes wherever you listen to our podcast. Thank you so much 